You know, when uh, I opened in prayer this morning, I uh, alluded to the uh, prayer that's found in Ephesians 1, and that is a prayer that I'm praying for our church in the new year, and I would ask you to join me uh, beginning today throughout the year. Uh, Let me just give you the reference. It's Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, That prayer begins at uh, verse 15, and it goes through the end of the chapter. Uh, So Ephesians chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 15 to the end of the chapter. But the very heart of that prayer uh, is that God would grant us, and this is what I'm praying for our church family in this new year, that God would grant us, as never before, uh, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ, uh, that we would see Jesus not as we think He is, but as He truly is, Uh, that God would break through our uh, distortions, our misperceptions, and uh, that we would truly see Him in His majesty and glory, and of course seeing Him uh, become like Him. And then that prayer goes on to say uh, that God would open our spiritual eyes, the spiritual eyes of our hearts, that we would see three things. Uh, First, that we would see as a church family what is the hope of God's calling on our lives, on our church, that we would embrace that calling and fulfill it. Second, that He would open our eyes to see the riches of His glory that He has deposited in us. And I'm praying that God will teach us through faith how to appropriate those riches, uh, not selfishly, but in order to be about His business so that we can fulfill the calling that He's placed on our lives. Uh, To be a healthy uh, church, a healthy body of Christ, to walk as He walked, uh, to have the opportunity to see many drawn to the Savior. And then the third thing he, thing he prays for is that our eyes would be open to the power that's been made available to us, the power uh, through the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that God uh, would let us know that power at work in our hearts and lives this new year, and that through that power that we truly would again fulfill our calling, finish the work that God has uh, given us to do here on earth. So I'm just challenging you. That's the prayer that I will be praying daily for our church family, and I'm asking all of you to join me in that prayer, and let's trust God will uh, answer that and as never before take us uh, deeper into our knowledge of Christ and in the fulfillment of our uh, calling as we know and experience His power. So with that, let me uh, dismiss our boys and girls for their uh, children's worship down in uh, Praiseville. If we have guests And uh, you have children, they are more than welcome to participate. It's just as simple as releasing your child to the vestibule. Leaders are there right now to uh, collect them. And they go directly below us for their children's worship. And that's where you would pick them up when uh, we uh, conclude here this morning. Well, as we enter the new year, I actually begin a new sermon series uh, this morning. It will be a seven-week sermon series uh, focusing on Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where you have Christ's messages uh, to the seven churches. I've entitled this sermon series, What Jesus Looks For uh, in a Church. And uh, we also will be celebrating uh, communion this morning, those of you who are part of the church family know that we always celebrate communion the first Sunday uh, of every month, and it will be our joy to do that uh, today. Uh, But I hope you did pick up a copy of the sermon notes. 
I will have to uh, move uh, quickly through this since we will be also having uh, communion, but I trust that this will be very meaningful and impactful to you as uh, we focus on Christ's first message, which uh, went to the church at Ephesus. Uh, but let's begin, as you see there in your sermon notes, with just a very uh, brief introduction uh, to the book of Revelation itself. Uh, first, concerning, concerning the author of the book and the recipients, uh, it's, of course, the Apostle John is the one who wrote the book of Revelation, and that book was sent to the seven churches in Asia Minor. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to uh, Revelation chapter 1, and you'll see this very, very uh, readily in uh, verses 9, 10, and 11. But we read there, I, John, uh, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. We see here that John wrote Revelation on Patmos. Patmos was a very small Island. It was a uh, barren volcanic island in the Aegean Sea, only uh, 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, and the Romans used this island as a penal colony. And of course, uh, John was banished there because of his testimony uh, for Christ. He was arrested by the Romans and uh, sent there uh, to die. Uh, and despite being close to 90 years of age, he would have been right at about 90 years of age at this point in his life, John was uh, subjected to hard labor uh, in the mines there on the island. Uh, he would have uh, suffered from inadequate food and clothing, and he would have had only the ground uh, for his bed. The Romans thought that when they banished John to Patmos, that would be the end of Christianity, because John was the last remaining apostle of Christ. Uh, but in reality, his banishment to Patmos served only as the setting for the revelation of Christ's ultimate victory over all the kingdoms of the world. And there is an important principle here, and I think uh, any of you that have walked with Christ any length of time would affirm this and say a hearty amen that it is in times of darkest adversity that we receive our most glorious revelations of Christ. Amen? And that is so very, very true. And then look at the historical context. Uh, we believe uh, the book of Revelation was written around 94 to 96 A.D. after the death of Christ at a time when the churches were under great satanic attack. Uh, the devil's one goal was to destroy the church, which was God's representative on earth and had been commissioned by Christ uh, to complete the mission that he began to take the gospel to the entire world. And his weapons, and get these down in your sermon notes, uh, four weapons that uh, he used uh, very aggressively. The first, of course, persecution. So persecution, 
Uh, Domitian was the uh, emperor at this time, and Domitian believed that he literally was deity, uh, that he was the supreme god, as uh, other of the Caesars believed as well. And uh, because the Christians refused to worship Caesar as the supreme god, they were considered political enemies of the state. And by this time, Christianity had been declared illegal in the Roman Empire. Uh, they were considered a, just a religious sect, cult, that needed to be uh, wiped out. And they just came under extreme persecution. Uh, the Romans just viewed them literally as the scum of the earth. Uh, the second weapon of the devil was false teaching. False teaching. Uh, as the Apostle Paul had warned... The church of Ephesus, many, many years earlier, false teachers, sadly, had infiltrated many of the churches at this time. And the teaching of these false teachers threatened to distort and to destroy the faith of the churches. Uh, the third weapon, of course, is his tempting believers to sin and to compromise their faith and their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and I think we would all admit more tragic than the blood of the martyrs was the bleeding from self-inflicted wounds due to their own sin. And then the fourth weapon, uh, discord, uh, disunity. Uh, Satan did everything that he could do uh, to create conflict among believers so that they would fight one another instead of fighting their true enemy and giving their lives to complete the mission that God had given them to take the gospel to the entire world. So persecution, uh, false teaching, sin, and discord were Satan's uh, weapons at that time. And there are Satan's weapons uh, today. And as we walk through these seven messages to the seven churches, we'll see these four weapons uh, being used very effectively against the church and Jesus addressing uh, these issues hoping to bring correction to the church and restore them to a place of holiness and power. So the point we need to understand, and this is very, very important to understand, is that when John wrote the book of Revelation, the future of the church was very, very bleak. The future was uncertain. Uh, Paul and all the other apostles had been executed for their faith. John, uh, John now, the lone survivor, 90 years of age, was banished to Patmos. The church, as we just mentioned, was fighting enemies from without and from within. The biggest question facing queer Christians at the time John wrote the book of Revelation was simply this. Will the church survive? Will the church survive? And many are asking that same question today. Is the church rele relevant today? Will the church survive uh, today? And of course, the book of Revelation provides a resounding answer to that question, which brings us to that next point in your sermon notes, the purpose of the book. And the purpose was simply this. The it's the revelation. The book of Revelation is the revelation of the ultimate victory. There's that blank you need to fill in. The ultimate victory of Christ in order to encourage the churches to be faithful in persecution, to resist error while holding fast to the truth, 
and to be holy in character and united in purpose. In the very first chapter of the book, I wish we had more time uh, to look at this, uh, but John is given an absolutely magnificent revelation of Christ. And, and in this revelation, Christ is standing in the midst of the seven churches, and he's holding uh, the stars, representing the pastors of those churches, in his hands, uh, a picture of security. Out of his mouth is pictured a sharp, two-edged sword by which he will sanctify and save his bride and slay her enemies. So do not miss this. This is often missed in any study of the book of Revelation. The purpose of the book of Revelation is not to whet our curiosity about tomorrow, about future events, as much as, as it is to provide strength to live for Christ today. And it does that, of course, by showing this ultimate victory of Christ, that we can trust that Christ will always stand with His church, that He will see us through difficult times, and in the end, He will be the victor, and the church will stand, and it will stand because He made a promise. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, that my bride will ultimately win the victory. Now, look at the next three questions uh, to ask throughout this series that you see there in your notes. And, of course, this now we're moving into these uh, Christ's seven messages to the uh, seven churches uh, in Revelation 2 and, and 3. You know, and, and before I mention these questions, I think we would all admit this, and, and this is sort of how I came up with the title of the series. Very sadly, in American church life, uh, we've developed a consumer mentality. Uh, we sort of, uh, you know, we, 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 we shop for a church. And, and we, we look for the church that we think is going to best meet our needs. It's, it's really a, a, a me thing. It's, it's, it's about me and, and how I can be served. But I think the most important question should be, what does Jesus look for in a church? I mean, if Jesus were here in the uh, valley area, by city area, looking for a church to attend and participate, and what would he be looking for? What does Jesus value in a church? What are his priorities? What's important to him? So the three questions we want to ask throughout this series and hopefully answer is, number one, what does Jesus look for in a church? And then second, very important question, does Jesus find what he's looking for right here at Edgewood Baptist Church? Does he discover that in our lives, in our hearts? And then number three, are we willing to give Jesus what he's looking for, no matter the changes it will demand in terms of priorities, in terms of values, in terms of perspectives, attitude, character, and conduct. So with that, let's move right into the first message, which is the message to the church at Ephesus, which was one of the greatest, greatest churches in New Testament times a church that was birthed, founded by the uh, Apostle Paul. 
uh, had as its pastors not only Paul, uh, Timothy, uh, and uh, the Apostle John as well. Uh, Apollos was in this church, Aquila and Priscilla. I mean, this church was just rich in uh, people resources and uh, the gifts of God and uh and uh, which is a uh, uh, just a wonderful church in many many ways. So let's read the message. And uh, again, I hope you have your Bibles open. And this is Revelation chapter two, and uh, the message to the church of Ephesus is found in verses one through seven. And again, we're not going to have time to look at every bit of this in great detail, but uh, I want to highlight this morning what I trust will be the most uh, pertinent points for us. But uh, verse one to the angel. Of the church in Ephesus, right, or that could be to the messenger or the pastor of the church in Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, we believe those seven stars represent the leaders of the church. Uh, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, those seven golden lampstands, he clearly tells us, represent the, uh, the seven churches. And let me just pause right there. That's a beautiful picture that Jesus is portrayed standing in our midst. Jesus being here this morning, walking through the pews of the, our church, examining our hearts, examining our lives, knowing where each of us are spiritually, knowing what each of us are struggling with spiritually, knowing our failures, knowing our victories. He knows all, nothing that he misses. And then verse 2, here's the heart of the message. He says, to the church of Ephesus, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance. And you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So those first three verses, wonderful commendation, but now comes uh, a real problem. He says, but, verse 4, but I have this against you. This is a problem I need to address that exists in this church, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet, this you do have, that you do hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So look with me now at the church who gave Jesus everything but the one thing, the one thing he wanted most. Uh, and we're going to look, if you see there in your sermon notes, we're going to look at three things, the faithful works of the church, and then, of course, the fatal weakness of the church that he addresses, and then the very forceful warning that Jesus gives to this church. So first, look at the faithful works of the church, and he mentions three things. He says, first, he says, yes, I'm, I'm so appreciative of the fact that you are faithful to serve the cause of Christ. And let me give you all three, and then we'll go back and talk just briefly about them. So he says, you're faithful to serve the cause of Christ in uh, verses 1 and the uh, first part of verse 2. And then he mentions you're not only uh, faithful to serve the cause of Christ, you're faithful to stand 
on the truth of Christ. Uh, the Word of God has remained central in all that you are and all that you do. And uh, you are able to discern between truth and error. And then number three, faithful to suffer uh, for the name of Christ. So those are the three blanks you need to get there in your notes. Faithful to serve the cause of Christ. Faithful to stand on the truth of Christ. Faithful to suffer for the name of Christ. And of course, we would want that to be true of us here at Edgewood as well. This is something he sincerely commends them for. Again, going back to faithful to serve the cause of Christ. He says to them, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. That word deeds means acts of service. The word toil means to work to the point of exhaustion. These folks were participants in the life of the church, participants in God's mission to take the gospel to the ends of the world. They were not couch potatoes. They were in the fight. They were involved, heavily involved, again, to the point of exhaustion. And then he says, your perseverance. He says, you've remained faithful under very difficult circumstances. And then, standing on the truth of Christ, he says, hey, I know you cannot tolerate evil men. He talks about the fact you test those who claim to be apostles that are not. And, and you're able, again, to discern truth and error. This was a church that was uh, rich in uh, biblical teaching. I mean, they should have been with pastors like Paul, Timothy, and the apostle John, and others that they had in the church that uh, instructed them so ably. And then faithful to suffer for the name of Christ. He says, I know that you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. We mentioned just a moment ago the churches were under severe persecution at this time in the Roman Empire. And he commends them. He says, you've remained faithful in these very difficult days with this pressure being brought upon you. You have not caved. You have not grown weary. So again, wonderful things that he commends them for, things that I trust Jesus will find right here at Edgewood Baptist Church. But now look at the fatal weakness of the church. And this is seen in verse 4, and that is, of course, and get this down in your notes, that first point, failure to love the person of Christ. That was their weakness, a failure to love the person of Christ. With very stern language, Jesus says, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. The word left, aphemai in the Greek, means to neglect. It means to forsake. It means to depart. It, st it stresses an act for which one, a person is personally responsible before. This is not lost love. It is left love, and it suggests three particular problems, three particular problems, and get these down in your notes. The first one, examining their history, they did not love Christ as they once did. Jesus says, when I examine your lives in this church, your love for me has diminished. It's beginning to deteriorate. You do not have the devotion. You do not have the passion. You do not have the zeal that you once had for me. Yes, you're very involved in doing a lot of things, but in terms of relationship, in terms of intimacy with me, passion for me, that's beginning to become very, very diminished. And then examining their priorities, that next point, examining their priorities. The bride, the church, has stopped giving her groom, Jesus, the one thing he desired most, heartfelt worship. That was their failure. 
That was the fatal weakness. Not giving him heartfelt worship. When Jesus said, you have left your first love, that word left was also used to speak of divorce in the culture in that day. So the imagery is very, very strong. Jesus saying, you've gotten so distracted by your many deeds, by all your service, by all your ministry, that in the midst of all of that, you've neglected me. I suffered, I died, I bled to possess you as my bride. And you have failed to give me the one thing my heart longs for more than anything else. Your love, your devotion, your attention, your affections, your allegiance, your heartfelt worship. And when I say heartfelt worship, we're not talking about just singing hymns and praise choruses. I think of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. When you look at Jesus, who He is, what He did for you, which we will celebrate in just a moment. He says, you need to reciprocate to such love. And you reciprocate by presenting your bodies, presenting all that you are, all that you possess, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which he says is your reasonable act of spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewal of your mind that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? That you're to love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your strength. So Jesus is saying, Yes, I appreciate your, your service and your commitment to my truth and remaining faithful even in difficult times. But you've departed from heartfelt worship. You're not giving me your undivided attention. And, and let me just mention, he says, to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and strength. Mind. In other words, we're to love him intellectually. In other words, our worship needs to be focused in the Scriptures because in the Scriptures, we find the revelation of Jesus, who He is, what He did for us. That's where our eyes are open to see His majesty and His, and His glory and, and all of His wonder. So, it, yes, it is a worship not void of the Scripture, not void of study, not void of academics, but you can't stop there. He says, yes, you're to love Him with your mind. You're to get into the Scriptures, driven there, out of your love for Jesus, to learn who I am, what I did for you, to develop a greater appreciation for me. But that should lead to something. That should lead to heartfelt worship, to where I capture your affections, I capture your passion. And that's why He says, you're not only to love Him with all your mind, but with all your heart, where He's your greatest treasure, your most valued possession, your first love, greatest passion and pursuit in life. And he says, not only mind, heart, but strength. We're to love him practically. Yes, we are to demonstrate our love for him through our acts of service, but they're to flow out of that love for him, not to try to earn his love because we have his love. We have his salvation. We know His grace. We're motivated out of that love, out of that power, out of that grace 
to see all of those acts themselves as opportunities to worship Him. Because that is our primary motive to do so. So Jesus is basically saying to him, you know, what good is your service if I'm not the most valued treasure of your heart? And then notice the next point there in your notes. Examining their Christianity, as a result of that, it had become a routine to endure rather than a relationship to enjoy. Yes, they were going through the motions. They were doing a lot of wonderful things. But where once it all flowed out of a passionate love relationship with Jesus, now it had just become a routine to endure instead of a relationship to enjoy. And then listen to me, beloved, to serve Jesus out of nothing more than a sense of duty. Now, again, I'm not trying to say there's not an element of duty in our service to Jesus. But if that's all it is, and there's no delight in a relationship with Him, that is an offense to God. God wants your heart. He wants your devotion. He wants your passion. The church at Ephesus gave Jesus everything. But the one thing He wanted most, heartfelt worship. So the question is, does Jesus find that here at Edgewood. And remember, when we talk about Edgewood Baptist Church, we're not talking about bricks and mortars. We're His, what? Living stones. Build up as a church family. So this needs to become very personal to each one of us. Have you left your first love? Do you love Christ as much as you once did? Or has that diminished instead of growing? Are you giving Jesus heartfelt worship? Has your Christianity just become more routine to endure rather than a relationship to enjoy? It's more about duty than delight. If so, you have lost your first love. And it's very important to see why this is so important to Jesus. Very important. And why he's so stern about pointing this out. And is in a moment, the very forceful warning that he gives them concerning this. He, what he's basically saying is, yes, 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 I'm thankful for your service. I'm, I'm thankful for you standing on the truth. Yes, I'm thankful for, for you being faithful even in the midst of suffering. But he says... If you miss this, you've missed everything. And it's just a matter of time before your service is going to begin to diminish. Just a matter of time before you begin to compromise with the truth to avoid suffering. Because reality is no one suffers for that which is not valuable to them. You only suffer for that which is most valuable to you. And Jesus realized if they didn't correct this problem and their love continued to diminish where the focus was not heartfelt worship, that other things were going to quickly begin to creep into their lives and begin to divide their heart. They would become double-minded in their walk with Him, straddling a fence between the world and Jesus. 
And they would begin to find it very easy to compromise, to avoid suffering. And then look at the second point, describing the fatal weakness of the church. And I think this is so important to see. And and again, this is why the warning is so forceful. Whenever there's a failure to love the person of Christ, there will also be, number two, the failure to live the gospel of Christ. didn't say know the gospel of Christ, but to live it. And let me tell you what I mean by that. You'll notice three little bullet points, and let's look at those. We want to see, in reality, what is the heart of the gospel? The gospel's gift, that first bullet point, is to embrace the treasure of Christ. That is the gospel's gift, to embrace the treasure of Christ. And what I mean by that is this. We often talk about the need for the gospel to be central in the life of the church. And that is true, so very true. But understand what the gospel is. The gospel is not merely the fact that Jesus died and rose again. Yes, it is that, but that's not all that there is to it. The good news is not merely the fact that Jesus paid for the penalty of your sin to appease God's wrath. The gospel is not merely the fact that your sins are forgiven, that you've been delivered from hell to have a home in heaven. All those things are true. But we must realize they are not the end of the gospel. They are only the means to remove all the obstacles so that we can be brought to God to embrace the treasure of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That He might what? Bring us to God. Paul, reflecting on his conversion, wrote in Philippians 3, 8, He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. The heart of the gospel is for our eyes to be open to the infinite worth, value, majesty, glory of Jesus. That's why Jesus says my kingdom is like a a priceless pearl. And once you see that pearl, once you see its value, you're willing to give everything, sell everything, surrender everything to obtain that pearl of great price. And Jesus is that pearl. So the heart of the gospel, yes, it is all that we talk about, Him dying, rising, forgiving us of our sins, delivering us from hell, getting, but all of it to get us to Jesus, to embrace Him as our treasure and heartfelt worship. And this brings us to the gospel's glory. That next bullet point, the gospel's glory is to exalt the worth of Christ. That's what our lives are to be all about. The person who embraces the treasure of Christ, that truly sees the value and infinite worth of Christ, will spend the rest of his life exalting the worth of that treasure and putting that treasure on display for all to see, for all to be drawn to it. Paul expressed this so beautifully in Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Look at those verses in your notes. He says, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. 
a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of His darkness into His marvelous light. And then look at that last bullet point. And this brings us to the ultimate goal of the gospel. The ultimate goal of the gospel, and that is to enjoy the person of Christ. To be satisfied with Him. To be content with Him. To say, Jesus is enough. You can strip me of everything else. You can take everything else away. You can take my health away. You can take my money away. You can take my relationships away. You can take everything away. But Because Jesus is my greatest treasure, my greatest prize, you can't rob me of my joy in Jesus. A great example of this, and I won't have you turn there for sake of time, but it's, it's Mary's anointing of Jesus that's recorded in the Gospels. Uh, it's recorded in Matthew 26. It's also recorded in Mark, uh, John. Uh, Mary of Bethany. You remember Mary? Her sister was Martha. Uh, Jesus raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. And toward the very end of his ministry, right before Christ going to the cross, he was eating dinner with his disciples And Mary's eyes had been opened as we prayed earlier. God, grant us that spirit of wisdom and revelation. Her eyes had been opened. She was beginning to see things the disciples weren't even seeing at that point. She realized why he had come. That he was about to go to the cross and to die for the sins of the world. So she comes into the dinner party with her most valuable earthly possession an extremely valuable, priceless alabaster vial of perfume. And she broke that, poured that on Jesus every single drop. And it says the the entire home was filled with the aroma of that perfume. If you're familiar with the story, the disciples are watching this, and they get upset at Mary. They actually get angry with her, the Bible says. They begin to scold Mary. And they actually make this comment. They said, Mary, why this waste? Why would you have wasted that? That could have been sold. We could have received so much money that we could have used in ministry to the poor and furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. And right in the middle, as they begin scolding her and jumping all over her for this stupid act where she just wasted that, Jesus interrupts and he says, men... Leave her alone. Leave this woman alone. What she's done is a good thing. She has anointed me prior to my death, prior to my burial. And I'll tell you something else, guys. What this woman has just done to me will be spoken of in memory of her wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world throughout all time. Don't miss what Jesus was doing. This is so significant. He was uniting. He was bringing together the reason for him coming into this world with what she had just done to him. And what he's saying to his disciples, he's saying, guys, you're missing it. Look, that is what the gospel is to do in a person's heart. That right there. She sees that I'm her greatest treasure. She has embraced my worth to exalt me, 
delighting in the relationship she has with me, not only now, but throughout all eternity. That's what the gospel is to produce. A heart in a person that is so thrilled with Jesus, so overcome by his infinite value worth, we just live the rest of our lives looking for creative ways to show our love, to show our heartfelt worship. And we do it with joy, not out of duty, but out of delight. And he says, guys, that's it. She's got it. You don't. And that's what happened at the church at Ephesus. They had lost that perspective. They had left their first love. And although they were very, very busy, going through a lot of Christian routines and duties, they had lost their focus on Jesus. And Jesus knew, sort of like... um, uh, just about every week or two, uh, I get my wife flowers. And when I first get those flowers, they're cut flowers. They're very beautiful. But after a while, they're not so beautiful. Matter of fact, they can become very ugly. Why? Because they've been severed from the root system. They've been severed from their life source. And Jesus is just, this is why the, the warning is so forceful. He said, if you lose this focus of heartfelt worship, you've missed everything. And everything is going to begin to unravel if you don't correct this. And then as we move to the Lord's Supper, he gives a forceful warning. And just get these four words down in your sermon notes. He says, you need to correct this, and this is what you need to do. He says, number one, remember. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember how you once loved me. Remember your passion. Remember one time you were like Mary, and you've drifted from that. And folks, isn't this a wonderful place to come to remember? But not so much focusing on our failure but the love and the mercy of our Savior as we remember His passion for us as He came to die for our sins to possess us as His bride. He loved Andy Merritt that much. He loved you that much to possess you as His bride. So as I look to Him and remember His passion, shouldn't that stir something in my heart? Shouldn't that ignite that heartfelt worship? So he says, remember. And then he says, repent. Repent over the fact that you've drifted from heartfelt worship. Repent over the fact that it's all about duty instead of delight. That it's just become a routine instead of a relationship. Repent. Turn away from that. Come back to giving me your undivided attention to giving me your undying affection and your uncompromising allegiance, all out of love for me. All is an act of worship. And develop walking with me moment by moment, day by day, in a beautiful, wonderful relationship. So remember, repent, and what? Return. Return. Let's, let's, Let's get back to first things. Let's get back to the most important thing, the priority, which is heartfelt worship. And put that first. 
well, yes, I want the service to remain. Yes, I want you to stay on that truth. Yes, I want you to remain faithful. But that would all flow out of a heart that is thrilled with me. That would flow out of a heart where they see all of that as just a way to worship instead of a routine to go through. But notice he tells them, you need to do this. Because if you don't, there will be the removal of your lampstand. Now, when he said that, he's not talking about the loss of salvation. But he's talking about the loss of their testimony. He said, if you do not correct this, you're not going to have an impact on me. Oh, you'll go about your activities, but there won't be changed lives. There won't be an impact for me. Because it's only when your love burns for me, and this is that last thing in your sermon notes, only when your love burns for me will your light shine for me. So as we come to the Lord's Supper today, I think we have a lot to contemplate, to reflect on, uh, to evaluate. And I think it just comes down to each of us this morning as we enter this new year. Jesus we see today that what you look for is heartfelt worship more than anything else. Do you find that in my heart? Have I left my first love? Ask Him for His evaluation. Trust the Holy Spirit to instruct, to convict. And then as conviction does come, if it comes, then remember from where you've fallen, repent, and return and trust in His grace going forward to grow you in this area. Let me ask our men to begin taking their places. In just a moment, I'll pray.